This is Michael Osterlink. Welcome to O Radio, where we explore individual and social transformation through collaborative action. I'm a psychotherapist with a transpersonal and somatic specialization. I'm also a transpartisan social entrepreneur and head instructor at SealFit's Unbeatable Mind Academy. Today's show is brought to you by Cosper Scafidi, an amazing bottle worker in Northern Virginia who utilizes many different somatic practices in his work, including biodynamic and mechanical craniosacral therapy, visceral manipulation, neuromuscular myofascial processes, and rolfing. You can learn more about Cosper's uh, um, work excuse me, at www.cosperscafidi, that's C-O-S-P-E-R-S-C-A-F-I-D-I.com. Our guest today is Dr. Laura Pence. As a licensed clinical psychologist, Dr. Pence has worked with Olympic athletes, successful business owners, and entrepreneurs. Dr. Pence serves as Chief Wellness Specialist for Spartan and hosts Spartan Mind, a weekly podcast. She also works with me at the SealFit's Unbeatable Mind Coaching Program, helping coaches serve their clients effectively and purposefully. She also has been featured in various publications and media outlets such as Good Morning America, the BBC, Glamour, Vogue, WebMD, Psychology Today, and the Huffington Post. How you doing, Laura? I'm awesome. Thank you for having me. It's yeah. crazy when you read off that stuff because like, I don't think about that. And I'm like, wow, that's not so bad, right? <laughs> and a wide variety of cool things, you know, from yeah. Huffington Post, WebMD, Psychology Today. Right, 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 right. That's pretty badass. Yeah, say. it's well, it's nice. You know, I like the idea that seeds are being planted kind of in lots of different minds and lots of different arenas. Like that's super hopeful for me. Speaking of seeds, when did becoming a psychologist get planted for you and why? Yeah, great question. Um, you know, it's funny. In eighth grade, we had like a behavioral science class, you know, and it was the kind where you you know, you had an egg and you had to pretend it was like a baby and carry it around for a day and not crack it, that kind of thing. And um, I remember there were a few different lessons that we went through in the class that I, I just found like super fascinating, like social psychology and the way that our unconscious influences our behaviors and that kind of stuff. And I just remember in eighth grade thinking like, this is so cool. Like the fact that we we can engage with the world in, in really such like a, such an intentional way that we don't even know we're doing, you know, whether it's like through confirmation bias or, or other sort of psychological phenomenon. So that was actually when the seed was planted. Um, and then I think it just grew through, you know, lots of different encounters with other individuals who, you know, were suffering. I had a best friend in high school who had an eating disorder and that was really um, interesting for me, but also really difficult for me because she was one of my close friends. Um, so, you know, lots of other sort of stories along the way that I think built up to this being a natural entry point for me. Um, and, and of course, you know, here I am, you know, um, 10 years out of graduate school or more than 10 years out of graduate school now. Um, and feeling like this profession has taught me more about myself than maybe anything could. So it's sort of like, well, of course I got into it so that it could also teach me certain lessons and challenge me in a way that would kind of elevate my contribution to the world, I think. Now, when you were in college, did you know that you were, were you doing like prereqs for going into Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Like as soon as I got into college, um, 
I mean, even before when I was applying, I knew that I wanted to do psychology. I had kind of toyed around with um, like doing some animal behavior stuff and maybe becoming a vet, but then like the idea of, you know, surgery and the, you know, all that kind of stuff. I was like, no, 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 I'd rather stay up in the head. Like in the mind is where I need to be, not quite in the rest of the body. Um, and then, yeah, when I finished um, college, I just, I really knew, I just knew like I wanted to be, I wanted to be a psychologist. And I also knew that I did not want to do research. That was like also very clear to me that I wanted to be working specifically one-to-one with clients. Um, And I remember actually that when I first got into graduate school, I was a little discouraged because there were quite a few uh, other students who I was in class with and even professors who would kind of throw out their well, it's really hard to start a private practice and, you know, psychologists are a dime a dozen these days. And like, it was a little bit, you know, not as, um, not as encouraging as I would like, but, you know, I was, I was determined and thankfully, you know, the path kind of unfolded for me in that direction. Well, having heard you interviewed in the past, having now worked with you a little bit at Sealfit's Unbeatable Mind Academy, you seem to have a unique approach to coaching. I'm curious, when you, when you were in grad school and you finished your PhD program, was that the way you now approach it, how you were taught to work with people? Or is this oh, no. <laughs> I can imagine so. <laughs> yeah. There has been a wild evolution of the way that I practice okay. since being in graduate school. I, went, I mean, I went to a very clinical program. It was called Widener University. Um, and it really was primarily for individuals that wanted to become practitioners, like clinical practitioners, not researchers. And so from like the third month that we were in programming and it was a five-year program, we were starting to do therapy with clients, like one-to-one. Um, and you know, you, when you go through graduate school, you learn a lot of the modalities and the theories, you know, CBT and ACT and DB, all of, you know, the alphabet soup, right? Um, and when I got out of graduate school and really started practicing, you know, I kept, I tried to keep in alignment with a lot of that stuff. And I think, I think that that's actually really good for individuals coming out of graduate school because you certainly don't want to be like, ah, you know, who cares about that? I'm just going to do what I want to do. Like you want some kind of structure. You want um, you definitely want a little bit of a playbook guiding you in the beginning because it's difficult work and it's also, you know, intense work in the sense you, you do have a responsibility to, to ethically and morally provide your clients with the best care. So, you know, in the beginning, I would say that I felt kind of much more structured in the way that I was working with clients. And then I really began to learn, um, a few things more about myself in the sense that like, that was not really my style, you know, that um, I am definitely a much more active, engaged, energetic practitioner. You know, I want to get in there. I, want, I don't want to just sit back and say, how do you feel about is- that? Yeah, exactly. Tell me how that feels. <laughs> you know, when they ask me a question and I say, well, what do you think? You know, um, I found myself like craving more, like craving more collaboration, craving more involvement. Um, And I think as I began to get more confident in my own skin, just growing up and maturing, I began to transition a little bit away from some of that more structured position and really move into a style that felt like it was my own. You know, certainly taking the the knowledge and the wisdom that I had learned in graduate school, but allowing myself to 
to find my own footing, I guess. Um, so it's been an evolution. You know, for uh, Sealfield Unbeatable Mind Academy, some of the things that you know that we teach, because you teach it as well, is right. toughness, emotional resiliency, listening to you on Spartan podcast and knowing, knowing about Joe's work, emotional resiliency, mental yep. toughness is a huge part of Spartan ethos. You know, what led you to, were you kind of the, the structured um, uh, cognitive behavioral, ego psychology, blah, 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 all those schools of thought, to kind of this kick-ass coach psychologist uh, <laughs> that you are now? You know, come, kind of walk through like that transition, that evolution. Yeah, so, well, like I said, I think the more, I think the more that, again, the more that I felt comfortable in my skin, the more that I just matured as an individual, the more life experience that I had, you know, being married, having children, starting my own business, um, the more that I began to really feel like if I'm not using my voice, I'm not operating from a place of integrity, right? Like if I'm trying to show up in the room as somebody that I'm not, it's not going to serve me and it's definitely not going to serve my clients, you know? So I think I really began to see that. And that even played out with some of my clients, you know, early on in my work with them. I mean, gosh, now I think back to some of the early clients that I had. And if I had their contact information, I would probably call them and say, I'm so sorry. I didn't know what I was doing. Um, so, you know, I think I also, as I said, I began to see that play out in my clients that the clients that I was working with who I was more myself with and just sort of more um, engaged, energetic, and, and sort of working from this angle of building up toughness and resilience. Cause that's, that's, you know, kind of my upbringing. Like I was always taught to just be a, a tough girl. I never thought, I mean, it's sort of crazy to say this, but I actually never thought that I couldn't do something a boy could do. You know, it just didn't cross my mind, maybe because I had a best friend who was a boy growing up. But so as soon when I noticed that the clients who I was more myself with were actually, you know, improving and making changes in a meaningful and purposeful way at a faster rate than the clients who I wasn't myself with, that was a big clue. You know, that was like, okay, I need to, I need to shift. When, when you finished grad school and you started working with clients, was there a niche or uh, area of human uh, activity that you're more interested in others, like a population that interests you? Yes. Yeah. I, I immediately, in graduate school, my last two years, I spent two years working as, at a residential treatment facility for women and girls with eating disorders. Well, um, and then that was really, I, I was hooked. I mean, I, um, I was fascinated by the disorder. I was, I was in awe that these unbelievably intelligent, creative, you know, just wonderful people were killing themselves through their relationship with food. And I had some of the best supervisors, you know, um, that really just allowed me to find kind of my groove in working with that population. So Immediately out of graduate school, I started working in that population and actually was the director of a facility and then opened up a private practice primarily for individuals who were struggling with eating disorders. And that also kind of gradually moved into and shifted into working with professional athletes. Um, to talk about that shift. That's yeah. So I started getting referrals for gymnasts and swimmers and wrestlers. Yeah. who were struggling in their relationship with food and, and runners. Um, and 
you know, as I would do work with them and, you know, it, it seemed to be good work, they would refer me to, or they would, they would refer their friends and their, you know, colleague athletes back to me and say, you know, I've been working with Dr. Pence and she's been super helpful. Or, and so I would get calls from other professional athletes who'd say, hey, I don't, I don't have an eating disorder, but I'm really struggling in, you know, X, Y, or Z in feeling good about myself after races or in performing the way that I want to. Do you, how would you feel about taking me on as a client? And I would be super upfront with them. Listen, I don't have an expertise in sports psychology, um, but I do have an expertise in helping you uncover this clouded relationship with yourself that is impacting your performance in life. And that's kind of how that transformation into working with athletes um, started actually is just, it was really referral based. You know, what's interesting about uh, food addictions or food troubles or, you know, uh, um, disorders versus like addiction to drugs and alcohol is that everyone has to eat. They do. Yep. They They absolutely do. That's got to be a really big challenge compared to not, not saying drug and alcohol is easy, but you don't need drugs and alcohol as you need food to survive. Well, exactly. You know, I mean, try telling a recovering cocaine addict, you know, you're going to have to do three lines a day in order to recover. (laughs) It's like, what? Um, So yes, it is, it is, um, it is a nasty disorder. I mean, it has the highest mortality rate of any mental illness, which a lot of people don't know. Um, And there's a lot, there's a lot sort of behind the disorder that I think too often gets missed when we talk about it. It's really a disorder of the self. And it manifests itself in a relationship with food and with one's body. Um, but it's, you know, I think we're, we're learning a whole, a whole lot more about it as we study the brain and things of that nature. And more people are talking about their own struggles. We've got a lot of, you know, or not a lot, but more men coming forward um, talking about their struggle and their relationship with food. But yeah, it's a difficult one. And I think, unfortunately, the way that our society sees and handles food and, you know, is so misinformed, um, contributes significantly. So uh, that leads me to a question on the the cultural aspects of it. Uh, Mm -hmm. I don't know if there's been cross-cultural studies, but do we see this in other other non-Western countries? So, yes, um, but it is really interesting. There was this study done um, in Fiji once, um, quite a while ago, but they, you know, Fiji had like no access to media. And then they, they took a control group and gave them access to media and the rates of eating disorders shot up. Um, so, you know, culturally, I think, unfortunately, there is a big contribution. I would not say that it is like the inception or the onset. You know, I think sort of like, like alcoholism, alcoholism, I mean, you can have somebody who comes from the same family and have, you know, sort of the same genetic makeup one person has a drink and they can never stop. The other person has a drink and they care less if they have another one, you know? Um, but it's a little bit like, you know, um, genetics and biology loaded the gun, but environment pulls the trigger. You know, I think culture has a huge impact on it. And unfortunately, our social media culture right now is absolutely perpetuating some of the difficulties. If, if eating disorders are perhaps a symptom of something internal, is it... Yeah self-worth i mean what, what, what did you is there something similar between all the patients that you saw yes absolutely shame 
Okay. The, you know, the, the, the feeling that, individ, that an individual is not good enough, that they're not worthy and deserving of love and belonging, um, you know, deep, deep rooted levels of shame. And unfortunately, I think in our culture right now, shame is a silent killer and it's pervasive. I mean, it's, we all experience shame, right? Like it's not, it's, it's not um, siphoned out for individuals who struggle. It is a thread of common humanity that we all at some point experience some degree of shame. But in my work with eating disorders and with individuals struggling with eating disorders, it popped up all over the place. Just this idea that, you know, they did not deserve to be on the planet, that they were not worthy of love and belonging, just a level of deep insecurity and shame that was profound. So yeah. it sounds like um, not all, if, that's, if that's similar with all, of, all the clients you saw, I, I imagine that there's a systemic piece to it, not just cultural. That pulls the trigger, as you say, right? But you right. know, the trigger, and not just subjective, but you know, there's there's uh, systemic or f- familial patterns. Big time. That, that bring that up. Do you? Is it uh, intergenerational? Do you? Is there something intergenerational about this as well? Oh yeah, sure. So individuals with eating disorders are seven times more likely to have an eating disorder if someone else in their family has an eating disorder. Um, and you know, I'm I'm a huge believer in generational trauma you know, that our trauma trickles down through generations. And so I think trauma is also really pervasive in the eating disorder community. Um, And so I think a a lot of that contributes to kind of the development. I mean, really in a lot of ways, when I work with individuals with eating disorders, primarily what I'm seeing is a fracture in their relationship with self. Um, That, you know, they don't love themselves. They have very little investment in elevating themselves or really feel stuck like they can't um, and that they're not deserving, like I said. Um, so, there, you know, it's a, it's a complex piece. Now, obviously, I'm going to ask you a question, like, how, how do you help shift that in someone? And we yeah. have uh, a little bit of time. We don't have hours and hours and hours. But, you know, if you, you can condense how you might work with someone with an eating disorder to shift how they perceive themselves so they yes. do have self-worth and operate from that space. How do you go about doing that? Right. It's a great question. So, um, you know, first, and this is, I guess, just primary with, with anyone that I see, but especially in working with individuals, with eating disorders, um, establishing a really good rapport is key, right? Like making sure that we have a really good relationship, seeing, making sure that they see me as human, you know, that, that I also have flaws, that I'm not perfect, that I, you know, have shame issues, you know, we all, we all kind of have this stuff, Right. Um, just so that ties in a little bit of that, like common humanity piece, like we we're kind of in this together. I don't have an eating disorder and I haven't ever struggled with them, but I see your pain. Like I know what it's like to feel alone. I know what it's like sometimes to feel angry, that kind of thing. Um, and then a lot of it comes with compassion and emotion regulation. So them like teaching them skills to have self-compassion um, so that when they struggle or when they fail or when they, you know, come up against difficult, difficult times, asking them to look inward and be kind to themselves, not necessarily condone certain behaviors. A lot of people get that confused, you know, that compassion is condoning. But, but to know that we, you know, again, like we all struggle. We are all on this planet. You are not on a separate planet. You are actually on earth with the rest of us where the rest of us also have a difficult time. Um, and then really a lot of emotion regulation skills. So a lot of, you know, teaching them some different emotional vocabulary, you know, what is it that you're really feeling right now? Those kinds of things, asking them to tolerate different emotions, 
especially some of the ones that people would identify as painful, tolerating stress, tolerating disappointment, tolerating discouragement, tolerating shame, um, and working with them in those pieces. Do you uh, integrate somatic awareness practices and meditation and things like that? Yeah, so here's what I've learned, um, which, you know, I could get, I could get some pushback here from other psychologists that are listening, but talk therapy is not everything. It is definitely not everything. And especially I feel with individuals who have such a fractured relationship with their body that get, you know, I would have to refer out because I'm that it's not my area of expertise, but I would often refer my clients to um, professionals who, you know, integrate yoga into their practice, somatic professionals, dance movement professionals, art therapists, because we actually do not have language, voice language for everything that we're thinking or feeling or experiencing. And so to be able to, you know, transition back into the body, to be able to understand your body in a way um, that you haven't for so long because you've been punishing your body for so long or, you know, putting it through so much distress, I think is key. And I will be the first one to raise my hand and say, listen, you got to start working with somebody else. We, you know, we have, or working in conjunction because talk therapy is not, is not going to take you to the finish line all the way. I have to imagine it's interesting working with athletes who most people would imagine have a good relationship with their body. At least my experience is they have a good relationship with their, with their body as a, as a tool to use for a certain event or sport, but not a really good subjective relationship with their body felt organic experience. Absolutely. And it's, I don't know if you experience this too, but, but it is difficult because especially when you're working with elite athletes, Olympic athletes, they have to push through certain feelings and sensations that, um, that make the work really difficult. You know, they really have to push through pain. They have to get through a point, you know, they have to, they have to push their body into a position of, of its most ultimate limit, um, which sometimes goes against, you know, the idea that when your body says, stop, stop, you know, for them, it's like when my body says, stop, I got to keep going. If I want to make time, if I want to, you know, um, get through trials in a way that, that, um, that I feel good about. So, it is interesting work, but definitely my experience is that um, there is a disconnection there that if they even begin to to see their body as as like a real vehicle not only for the product of their performance but also like a product for their contribution, you know that they treat their body well in recovery and they do the things that they love doing, you know that kind of thing. Thing I think can also be really, really helpful. Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, at, at SealFit, we talk about 20x. You can 20x, you know, people right. 20 times more than they think they can do. Yep. But one thing that I discovered, and I'm curious on your thoughts too, and it sounds like you fit in with what I'm about to say, is that some of the people attracted to SealFit or to Spartan Race um, are AAA personalities. They're go, yep. go, 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 go. Yeah, them is they don't need a twenty x performance. They actually need a negative twenty x performance. <laughs> a lot less. They need to be with quietude and solitude. Right. Be with themselves, not right. always performing at one hundred ten percent. Right, totally, and that's hard. You yes. know, it is really hard. I mean, I am certainly not an elite athlete, but just even recently, um, I when I run, I run fast, and I I mean, you know, nowhere near like what other people might consider fast, but. Um, 
but recently I've been trying to train my body to be more comfortable running slower so that my heart rate is in a certain level. And that is even really hard for me. I want to keep going and I want to push myself and go fast. And I'm like, do, do, do. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah. So for these athletes that do this for a living, it's, um, I think it can be really difficult. And, you know, if you're, if you're working with somebody who has a coach, like a running coach or, you know, they, in their specific sport, which many of my clients do, sometimes I'm bumping up against that coach a little bit and helping, you know, collaborate with that sports coach on like, listen, we've got to, you know, we've got to get him thinking too about his mental game. We've got to get her thinking about her resilience. You know, we can't just have them focused on the clock, looking at their Garmin every time they're hitting a mile mark, you know, that kind of thing. That collaboration could be really helpful, but it doesn't happen as often as I would like for it to. You just mentioned the coach and you mentioned on occasion you'll, you'll refer out to somatic practitioners or yoga yeah. therapists and stuff. And we talked a little bit earlier about kind of a systemic approach. You know, there's cultural aspects, there's familial aspects, there's individual aspects. How do you, how do you, if you do bring in spouses or other people into the work when you're working with an individual? Yeah. You know, I, first I think it, it has to make sense for the work, right? I mean, it has to, there has to be a place for it. There has to be a call for it, but if you look hard enough, it always makes sense for the work, you know, in a lot of ways, because people need, we need each other. We need connection to heal. And I am a huge believer that connecting is, uh, is the healing agent. Um, and that we've gotten so disconnected from other people, um, and from ourselves. So, oh my gosh, right? Yes, exactly. Um, ch checking out that iPhone, looking on that iPad. Um, so usually in my work with clients, it's interesting, actually. I would say that a lot of my clients bring it up first. You know, like, would it be okay if, you know, I brought my husband to the next session? Or how would you feel about, you know, um, me doing a session with my best friend or whatever it is? Um, and so I think, you know, usually, unless there's a reason for me specifically not to work with that individual, you know, that it would, it would sort of put me in a place of being out integrity. For example, let's say I'm working with somebody who's having an affair and then to have their spouse come in, but I know this information and, you know, I know that it's clearly having an impact on their marriage, but I can't talk about it or we've, you know, that doesn't feel so great. So I would refer them to a marriage counselor, but I would say that usually, you know, the invitation is there and then we just thoughtfully work through what would that look like? Um, and what's the role of your support system? Who's going to be coming in and joining us in this session or or join, um, joining us in the work that we're doing. You know, what is the purpose? What's the intention? You know, and that's what I find a lot because people kind of on the path with personal development, um, mm -hmm. if their spouse is not on that same path. It doesn't have to be the exact same path, but on a path of personal growth and development, whatever their path might be. Right. I find that, uh, you know, the, the head bang, the butting up against each other, like the one spouse is afraid and fearful of this other spouse growing, deepening, you know, personal development type stuff. And they, and they do things to kind of stop it as much as possible, either consciously or unconsciously. Yep. And I find that to, you know, be stifling for the individual who's the client, but also stifling for the partner because, yep. you know, they're, they're both locking themselves into uh, a status quo, which is not serving them. Yep. No, I mean, I, I think that's a great observation and certainly one that I've seen before, which is what, part of the reason why I do think it's so 
I mean, you have to communicate with the people around you who matter to you. And, you know, not everybody's going to have the same values as you or path as you, but especially if it's an intimate partner or somebody that's close and can support the journey that you're on, like they've got to at least be aware of this train that's happening, you know, and not digging their head in the sand and not wanting to hear about it. That's just not helpful. Right. Um, we I mentioned at the very beginning when I was introducing you that you're both affiliated with SealFit and Spartan Race. Mm -hmm. You do the Spartan podcast. How has your relationship to Spartan affected your work as a psychologist or has it? Yeah, I would say that it has in a couple of different ways. Um, one, you know, it's sort of interesting. I'm a big believer that you have to, you have to have your eyes open for the signs that things need to change. And um, I was at a point in my private practice, like many, I'm sure, you know, having had a private practice for eight years where I was feeling a little tapped out. You know, it's it, private practice can, can actually be a lonely work. Um, you know, you're in your office all day, just seeing clients. If you don't work in a group practice, it's just you. And I was at a point in my life and in my career where I was just craving more. And I kid you not, like the very week that I was talking to my husband about, you know, I think I want to do more. I think I want to get outside this box. I got this phone call from Spartan. <laughs> that is awesome. <laughs> and, you know, initially too, here's the other thing. Initially, um, I think I had been much more attached to the word no than I was to the word yes in some of my work, you know, really making sure that every single client that came through my doors was appropriate to, you know, in, in the line of work that I was doing and, and kind of saying, you know, no to a lot of um, requests to work with people because I wasn't sure that it, you know, I was the best person for them or wasn't sure that we were the best fit. I felt like I was saying no a whole lot more than I was saying yes. And when I got this call from Spartan, you know, I was, again, kind of at this point in my life where I just needed something different. And I was like, I'm just going to say yes. I'm just going to say yes and have this one meeting with Joe DeSena and these other people and just see how it goes. And that yes served me really well because I just kept saying yes to things. And in the past year, I've started doing things that I never would have dreamed that I would do, you know, go to Japan and South America to film these online education courses that we're hoping to, you know, roll out shortly. And so it, I realized, this is a long story, but I'm getting to the point that my work with Spartan has allowed me to become much more available to yeses in my life. Um, and I feel as a psychologist it's really important to remember that part of things because one of the things that I have worked a lot with with my clients is boundaries, right? Setting no, saying no, allowing yourself and giving yourself permission to say no. Um, and I guess I realized that like I was saying maybe too many no's and it wasn't serving me. And so the more that I started to say yes, the doors really opened. And so I think I kind of shifted. I've had like a little bit of a shift in my mindset around the power of yes. Um, as opposed to the power of no. Um, and that has helped serve my work for sure, because with some of the clients that I have, um, you know, a lot of them, for example, are entrepreneurs or individuals in like senior leadership positions in business. And a lot of them are used to saying, no, no, we can't do that. Nope, nope, it's not going to fit in the budget. No, we're not going to hire that, you know. And I think sort of my own experience has allowed me to get them curious 
about what would it be like if you said yes, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So that's how I would say that that that's been the main, the main and major impact in my life. Would you say that part of the yes is both risk taking and openness to the unknown? Totally. Yes. Which I think, you know, in so many ways, it's sort of in alignment with Spartan, right? It's like, you know, yeah. How do you, how do you move into and lean into the uncertain? Um, and it is, it's scary, you know, and there, there are times certainly where I'm like, oh my goodness, what am I, what am I doing here? (laughs) Um, but it feels good. I feel so in integrity with my own value system, you know? Um, but I definitely, I definitely think that like part of the reason why we don't say yes to things more often or yes to things that are, that are risky or uncertain is because of that fear. You know, what happens if I say yes to this and it doesn't work out or what happens if I say yes, but I lose that other opportunity, you know? Now, if people want to work with you, how do they find you? Yeah. So you can go to my website. It's just drlarapence.com. I'm also on Instagram with the same handle, drlarapence. Um, you know, I, you reach out to me directly through that. Uh, my email is Laura at drlarapence.com. I'll certainly shoot you an email back. Um, you know, and then through Spartan and Spartan Mind, and then of course the Unbeatable Mind and the coaching <laughs> right. program, and you know that the awesomeness that that is for sure. Awesome. Well, Laura, thank you for your time. It's great to talk to you in this way. No, oh, you're welcome. It's been I. I mean, these conversations just with awesome people are like again. It's another thing where I'm like, oh my gosh, how is this happening? How do I have to have such cool and for <laughs> cool, enlightening conversations? I, I appreciate that, and it's great to have you as a guest on my podcast, but also as a colleague at Seal Fits and Beatable Mind. Of course. So, I'll see you on the web soon. Awesome. <laughs> Take care. You too. Bye bye.